Good afternoon, Ayush. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. How about you? I'm doing pretty well. Just, uh, oh, just got some text on my new phone here. Let me look at those real quick, Ayush. Oh, my God. So in case you guys can't see, well, you guys can't see our screens <laughs> right now, but he has the new Samsung Galaxy flip phone, which I think is absolutely a stupid, like, invention oh. altogether. But I'm so glad that he's able to enjoy this. Okay, well, I know that our next episode is about me proving you wrong about how innovative and useful the new Samsung foldable phones are. But I, I think you have a different topic in mind for us right now. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. So I think a little bit about like the global stage currently is that there's a lot that's been going on. The Queen of England passed away. The coronation of King Charles is going to happen next year. And then on top of that, Russia is now withdrawing from Ukraine. And we are seeing that what Russia did in the region was absolutely atrocious with all the crimes that they were committing against the people of Ukraine. But Something that's being hidden more and more has been the economic situations of China and how that's going to be like impacting the rest of the globe. So that's something that we wanted to investigate a little bit into this episode and provide you guys with some insight on. Yeah, reporting from China is really interesting. That's something we'll talk about more later, but there's just been a big information gap on this issue as a lot of attention has been focused to the queen. And um, see, I usually... Uh, we'll know that I almost wanted us to do a video on the Queen itself because I felt like even our coverage of that was very much kind of missing the point. But I, I think I usually was correct to note that there's a big, much bigger hole, and that if you if you're just kind of casually following headlines, you're gonna miss a lot of what's happening in China, the largest um, country on the planet. Yeah. So let's just get right into what's happening currently in China. So right now, homeowners in China are very, very upset. The housing market in China is going through a bubble, and it's been going through this bubble for like the past year or two, though it hasn't been necessarily popping because of the government just funneling more and more money into the sector. But especially this year, the rates of home buying are like nearly 25% lower than they were expected. And on top of that, homeowners in China are no longer making their mortgage payments on housing. Usually when a company or when like a contract company is going to build a project in a region or build a house in the US, you have individuals who take out like construction loans and then they use that to fund their project and then they get their money back by selling their housing. The way that it works in China is that they go through pre-sales and it's not necessarily the form of loans that's paying for all their like housing and all the construction that's happening. Rather, it's the people and they pay through, through this through mortgage payments, which quote unquote act as like a pre-sale. So you're paying on property that isn't fully constructed. So these companies can use that money to go ahead and build your property. It's it like it makes sense, but it also like limits these companies and how effectively they can use your capital and how soon they can use their capital. I'm sure they have a bunch of capital just stored up from them also taking loans from banks here and there, but it also just like limits the way that like an individual is able to get access to their housing because in case there are any sort of delays in your housing you're still making payments but your property still hasn't been constructed and that's the situation that's currently happening in China more and more individuals are unwilling to pay their mortgages because nearly um 
nearly 4% of the entire housing market of China is facing these delays. More and more mortgages are not being paid. And these companies, these contractors are going through like kind of like a hell between trying to finish these projects, but also trying to secure enough capital just in general to continue funding the company. So it's like this back and forth that's going on and on, and it's creating a really unstable state of the Chinese housing market. But to also paint a little bigger of a picture, people are not only beginning to boycott these mortgage payments, but now it's also these companies and these supplier companies that are also beginning to more like boycott these companies. So these companies that are like building like these real estate companies that are building these properties in the first place, they're not now even being supplied with the necessary materials that they need to build these like these projects. So it's kind of like from every direction, these uh, housing companies are just not able to get the projects completed, whether or not they're making proper decisions in the meantime is a whole nother impact. But just the current climate is just setting that up in place. And it's getting more and more like of an issue as time passes. And I think when Aubrey started talking about a housing bubble, a lot of people would start thinking about the 2008 crisis here in the United States. But the, the scale of things in China has the potential for it to be a much larger issue than what happened in 2008 and caused a global recession, especially since how Chinese economy is so linked to the production and manufacturing of things currently. And I think a really interesting thing to note about the scale of this event is that there's a housing bubble and that they're building more houses than they need in some ways for their current population level. And you also have to keep in mind that due to you know, other societal factors and the one now two child policy, China's population is projected to start declining rather rapidly currently, which will make their ability to absorb any shocks from a housing bubble popping right now way worse going forward. And I think what's also making this a little bit more problematic is that because people are not making their mortgage payments, anytime a mortgage payment is made and the money is like received by these real estate companies, they're using that money to like not necessarily work on the contracts that they said that they're gonna be building, but working on contracts that they were supposed to finish a while back, but just did not have the money or did not have the capital to finish. So it's basically kind of like this Ponzi scheme in a way where like individuals, like these companies are just using new money to like to fill old gaps. And they're just creating more and more gaps that are just gonna exponentially increase as they take out more of these uh, contracts for individuals to invest in. So one of the biggest companies in China or one of the biggest property developers in China is called Evergrande. And currently they're nearly in $300 billion in debt. And for the past year, they've been on the brink of collapse, but have escaped defaulting because of how much support they've been given by the government of China. And that should also kind of characterize how you should be viewing a lot of these Chinese issues even though there might be like, okay, this huge problem happening in the economic sector of China, a lot of it is still propped up by the command economy of the government. And as a result, they're able to influence a lot of what of the decision-making and the end outcomes of what actually trickles down to the people. So kind of continuing a little bit on the Evergrande state, it's been on the brink of collapse and they've been missing payments more and more recently. And as a result, they're inching closer and closer to defaulting, something that they've been kind of close to again and again, but now they're like closer than ever before. So it would be interesting to see if China is going to prop them up again. And most likely that might have to be the case. Otherwise, the alternative would happen where the, that part of that, like that real estate company goes ahead and collapses. It's one of the biggest 
in China, and that leaves millions of people without jobs. So kind of why this is important is that Evergrande itself makes up a huge portion of the Chinese economy. But even when you don't consider just Evergrande on its own, considering real estate, that makes up 30% of China's GDP. And it's one of the biggest asset classes in the world. And what I mean by asset classes is that when you look at like a country like the United States, most of the assets come from fixed income or equity. And that's the like economic distribution of the United States. Meanwhile, when you look at China, those other aspects are a lot, lot lower. And the biggest asset is real estate. So there being a bubble there is kind of problematic. And this one of the biggest reasons why real estate has become more and more of an impact or like just more and more of a focus in China is that in the past like 20 years, the value of property in China has skyrocketed. It's, I think, nearly quadrupled in many, many places. And affording a like a home in one of the biggest cities in one of the most luxurious areas in China is so much more expensive than if you were to try to get that, with that same home in a place like New York, where housing is already like exponentially higher than the average income. So it's this really interesting phenomenon that's also starting to take place that because of companies like Evergrande that are like defaulting and like real estate having such a huge impact, these uh, in, and individuals now also default, like not willing to pay their mortgage payments. It's creating this really, really interesting state of economic turmoil and like housing turmoil that like the government doesn't necessarily know how to combat because they've never had to do something like this in the past. Even in our 2008 recession, we never had something this bad, even though we had banks defaulting, we were able to bail them out, but it wasn't necessarily the contractors who were unwilling to build these, like, the, these properties. It wasn't necessarily set up like a Ponzi scheme. It was like them giving out bad loans. There are similarities, but there are also fundamental differences. But I think also your point about like that, some of these uh, good cities are getting more expensive than somewhere like New York. Is good to point out because the income, even in the wealthier parts of China in those areas, is still but like a third of the average in America. Yeah, yeah. And it's creating this really, really interesting dynamic because, like you mentioned, like a lot of these individuals in China just don't have enough money to even afford these properties. So, because historically property development has been seen as such a stable way of growing your income, what Chinese citizens usually do is that because they don't have enough money to invest in properties on their own, they may go through multi-generational wealth, but also multi-family wealth to afford a lot of these properties and try to get some of an investment back on their money that they're contributing towards the economy. Rather than putting money in stocks like you would in the US, they're putting it all towards affording property because it's historically just been seen as a really steadfast way of growing your money. However, the current like looming state of the Chinese economy and and it's specifically the housing sector of the Chinese economy has been more and more troubling. And as a result, you've seen home buying just plummet and plummet. But on a different note, but somewhat also similar, I also wanted to touch a little bit on the banking sector. And you might notice that there's a little bit of similarities when an individual talks about like mortgages and banking, but there's also something else happening in terms of banking that's also contributing towards the economic instability of the nation. And what's happening is that Earlier in 2000, or well, earlier this year, many regional banks like froze a lot of funds and many clients noticed that 
a lot of their funds were frozen and they couldn't access it. They couldn't take any of it out. And these were just like normal everyday citizens who just did not have access to their money. And they were really like really concerned because this institution, once again, historically secure, historically willing to give back their money, all of a sudden was no longer to give back their, was no longer giving back their money. And almost $6 billion had been frozen. And the way that China described it is that it had been frozen due to illegal lending activities. This is the alleged description, but it doesn't really make sense like where this illegal uh, like lending activities come from. China eventually uh, like uh, started to arrest individuals who were tied with gangs and blamed them for these illegal lending activities. They took over banks somehow, and this continued on for like a while, and China only caught on later, which is why they froze these assets. But that only happened after there was a huge protest in July outside of the People's Bank of China, where like thousands of protesters were squashed by the Chinese government and silenced for like their protests of trying to get their money back. So now it created this sort of distrust between the Bank of China and also the people who already were like uncertain about buying more homes, but now we're also uncertain about even putting any of their money in any sort of institution within China. Wait, do you have any more information about this gang plot you're talking about? I do not have much more information because China wasn't super upfront about it or at least reporting wasn't super upfront about it, and I can't really read Chinese. But from what I know and what I've been reading is that they kind of just like funneled the blame onto other individuals and said that they just took over these banks and were the ones that were engaging in legal lending activities. And that's why all these assets were frozen. No other reason. There's definitely more complexity behind this, but at the end of the day, the biggest impact is that there's a brewing sense of distrust, not only from these like real estate companies that are building properties, but also now the banks where people can store their money. So the biggest institution or like the biggest way people can grow their money is now unstable. And the biggest way that they can save their money and keep it like in a secure place is also unstable. So kind of like the capital of most of these like middle-class families is kind of up in the air because they don't really know what they can do with it. That's really interesting. And I think that brings us to like an important discussion of like, why is this happening now? Why are we seeing this deterioration? Because, you know, you talked about the uh, command control aspect of their economy a little bit where they're, you know, they, they call themselves officially a communist country, communist party, but they, under this philosophy of that the, the goal of communism is to redistribute wealth at the very end of sort of the development process. Um, they have this idea that they can be mostly capitalist functioning to get this wealth, but they do use that command part of it to kind of, that's how they got this bubble as big as they were, because they weren't willing to back away from the strategy, whereas maybe earlier, they could have done maybe a soft landing, a smaller pop of this bubble. The government was so committed to hitting GDP targets and keeping those construction workers employed that they just kept pumping money into this. And maybe they had a strategy for how they could stop it from giving to this point. Most like outside observers don't really think they had a good plan for how they're going to avoid what we're seeing right now. Um, but now, you know, the banks are they're having banks default and their GDP growth is the second lowest it's been in the last 20 years. And they have massive unemployment among young people. And there are like a few main reasons why, well, this was seemed bound to happen at some point why it's like happening right now. Um, one of them is the COVID-19 pandemic. It was bad for everyone's economy globally for a little bit at least, but in China, 
they've really stuck to this idea of zero COVID. So you see right now, um, there are, I think, 300 million people in China about is the number under cities that are in partial or even full lockdown still due to COVID policies. Because uh, a lot of other countries kind of moved on from that strategy now that they have vaccines, but China has still, and Xi Jinping specifically, is just unwilling to let any spread of the virus. And that's hugely hampering their economic production capabilities. Another big thing that's affecting them right now is uh, the massive droughts they're having as well. And so those two things account for a big part of it. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting, kind of touching a little bit more on like the COVID side of things, because while China is getting more and more strict with their lockdowns and continuing to enforce like this zero COVID policy, like earlier today, or at least earlier this week, Biden announced that we are no longer in a pandemic. So just like the stark contrast between two of the most like developed nations in the world or two of the, at least two of the biggest economies in the world, like one is like still cracking down on COVID, one is still shutting down businesses. Meanwhile, the other one is just in like embracing that the pandemic is now over, we can finally rest and relax and our economy can go back to its like pre-COVID state. So it's really interesting just seeing that juxtaposition. Yeah, and, and the COVID policies in China as they were here much more immediately, um, are starting to get pretty controversial. And there was a big news story recently of that a quarantine van that was transporting some people to like a part of the city where they could be quarantined and separate from like general population. And there was a crash involved that caused um, several deaths. And so that's also been a source of big controversy and kind of an outlet for anger over the wider COVID policies. Um, so you had that going on. And then for this last summer, they've had this massive drought. Uh, several rivers completely dried up. Uh, the Yellow River became unusable for transport, so they had to dock all the boats and get trucks to try to ship people things out, which was slower and more expensive. Um, and, and then another interesting factor that's also hurting their economy, and especially kind of contributing to that high unemployment young, among young people, is that a couple of years ago, um, the communist, uh, Chinese Communist Party started a crackdown on sort of the tech millionaires and billionaires because they didn't like that that was kind of eroding the command uh, central authority of the government. And sort of, even though they wanted the tech growth, the tech innovation for the economy, they didn't necessarily like how some how wealthy and powerful some individuals were getting. And so as part of a so-called crackdown on corruption, in which they did really get out a lot of corruption, they also used it as an opportunity to target these big tech companies in ways that were unrelated, some would say, to their wider goals. And that has weakened those companies. And now that those companies, like every other else in the world, is de are dealing with the supply chain shortages and uh, the lack of energy caused by the drought in China, because their hydroelectric plants can no longer function, and that's hampering manufacturing, that combined with the crackdown is really weakening them. So you're seeing uh, the tech giant Alibaba is laying off about 15,000 people. The gaming uh, and social media company Tencent is letting go of nearly 6,000. And those are huge dips in uh, employment when many young people getting degrees had been counting on being hired by companies like that as an opportunity to grow and enter the workforce. And so those three things are squeezing the economy. And when they have these longstanding structural issues uh, with the housing market, it's a perfect time for that to crash. And this, this is not just a huge issue for China and for the young people in China who are most immediately affected right now, but it can have a massive impact on the global economy as China is a, still a huge manufacturing powerhouse and a huge market for exports now as well. And both sides of those 
are being struggled. The imports and exports are really going to be hard to get either direction into or out of China now. Yeah, and I, I think kind of just also touching a little bit more on that is that more and more recently, oh, since like the 2008 like how like housing crash, the world economy has mimicked a lot of the state, the Chinese economy, and it's become more and more like intertwined. So any sort of like issue with the Chinese economy usually tends to have repercussions on the world economy just because of how big of a manufacturer economy that it is. Because if hundreds of thousands or even millions of jobs are lost in China and they now can't manufacture goods that we use, now we're going to have a shortage and now we're going to see hikes in prices and now we're going to not be able to afford basic services that we usually take for granted. And you saw over this past summer, both in Europe and the US, a lot of laws such as the CHIPS Act in America were passed that were supposed to kind of decouple the advanced economies of the Western world from dependence on China. But that's a long process of technological development and reform that just cannot replace what's happening right now and the importance of China to the global economy right now. And China knows first and foremost for their immediate well-being, but also for the kind of brand of diplomatic power that they've been spouting to the world for years. They've put a lot of uh, effort into making their economic model, their political model seem viable. And, and it, they're trying to make it enviable for other countries to want to be like China and to want to work with China. And so they know for that overall strategy of their five and 10 and 15 year plans that they have as a command economy have made, they need to find a way to address this. Um, and so one thing they've been doing is what they have been doing for the last 10 years, which got them to this point, but they're not giving up on just pump, pumping money into the bubble to stop it from popping. And uh, one uh, very noticeable, notable quote from a Chinese official on it was that in order to stop the slowdown, he said that buy one property, then a second, already bought a second, buy a third and a fourth. It's really just a commitment to this idea of just pumping more and more money into the bubble so that it doesn't pop. But obviously, that's not a very long-term strategy unless outside investment and growth can really sustain China's economy. And that confidence in its economy is starting to weaken and other countries are trying to find alternatives, which is really going to uh, be a lot of struggle. Um, and, so, and so the one other uh, aspect that they're trying to do is to try to continue to engage with other you know, developing countries and gain support in what's called their One Belt, One Road project that we've talked about a little bit in other videos, as well as investments in Africa. Um, but those, once again, uh, have met their own issues. Um, it was They were a huge election issue in the most recent election in Kenya. And there's a lot of anti-Chinese sentiment developing there because people weren't happy with how Chinese investments turned out. And, and so others facing a lot of headwinds as they're trying to navigate this. And uh, one caveat is that a lot of our information is from Chinese government reports. Uh, and, and so it can be unclear exactly how accurate the information that we get always is because they have these five-year plans, they have set targets, and they, they know they can't completely mislead themselves or others, but there's a lot of incentives at various steps of the way for local officials and for the publicists who send data to other countries to try to move numbers a little bit to make them look in the best possible light. And so it's hard to tell exactly how much of that may or may not be happening. Uh, one of the pluses of Xi Jinping's crackdown on the corruption is that there is supposedly sort of less of that 
moving numbers around. But once again, that's taking their word for it at the end. So hard to know. Yeah, and I think one like despite all these negatives we've talked about, we still also need to focus a little bit on the positives of this, right? Um, not necessarily positive, but at least the positive actions China has taken. Once again, because of the way that the Chinese economy is structured and its it, like its command economy at the end of the day, like how big of an influence government the government has on certain aspects, it owns all the land in China per se. Like uh, it. it takes control a lot of these businesses really easy to have the power to shut down businesses without even like like a second thought and that also influences how it's going to respond just generally if the housing bubble were to even pop because it doesn't mean China can stop pumping like China can always continue pumping money into the housing bubble and prevent it from popping but in the like chance that it even does pop china has control of its economy where it can make other parts of the economy more mobile it can reorganize parts of the economy to make sure that the, any sort of like downsides from so any sort of poppage is not necessarily felt by the average citizen they are still taken care of and that still inspires us like a degree of confidence from the people in its own economy. And that's something that a lot of Western countries just cannot mimic just because of them not being like China in our 2008 recession. Like sure, the government did have a huge play in like bailing out these banks and everything like that, but they couldn't necessarily say like, okay, we're gonna be shutting down this, this, and this. We're gonna be reorganizing this, this, and this. And as a result that like didn't like that kind of like escalated the situation per se or prevented them from like at least de-escalating it and that's something that China can uniquely do it can de-escalate a lot of the situation and kind of make its impacts a lot less felt even worldwide and even domestically. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's a really good point I used that because of the structure of their government economy they have options that just were not available to western countries in the 2008 crisis but their ability to do those depends a lot on their ability to maintain a sense of trust among their citizens, which is weakening a little bit with how they've managed it so far, and just an overall sense of social cohesion. And I think it's be a stretch to say that's lost, but I think there is a risk that if they don't handle this properly and well, they then lose their ability to handle it at all if they lose that trust. Um, and one of the big reasons they do currently have some level of trust is that it is important to note there are positives to how their system has worked so far. Just in the last 10 years, they pretty much eradicated over 100 million people who used to be living in extreme poverty under the international definitions, that's now down to zero. And the rate of you know extreme hunger in the country is down to one fifth of what it was when you and I were just in middle school. That's extreme and rapid progress that was on top of progress that had already been very rapid from the 1980s. And so there is a lot of trust and a lot of respect built into their system domestically and with some of the partners they're trying to work with around the world. But the challenge for them will be, you know, their system has unique strengths. It also has shown that it has some weaknesses that allowed this bubble to get bigger than it probably could have anywhere else. And coupled with the environmental control issues that are out of their control and coupled with the crackdown and their own um, uh, COVID policies and their need to control the disease, they have real challenges and how they are able to deal with these or if they're able to deal with them will be a major influence for how this next decade looks globally. Yeah, and I think that's like honestly a perfect way of ending this episode because just the forecast of China will really affect 
the way that its global position will be over the next coming decade. So we can only hope that China handles its housing crisis in a very responsible way. They have a unique control of their economy, even though they haven't been the best with it over the past few years, and they've let it grow up till this point by just funneling more and more money haphazardly. More recent policies point to them hopefully taking a change. And we'll hope, we hope to see that within the next coming year. Otherwise, who knows, we might just be funneled into a recession because of China, even after getting out of COVID. But something I'm confident to say is that thanks to the magic of their portable phones, the South Korean economy will be just fine. <laughs> Thank you guys for tuning in, and I hope you have a great day.